Welcome to the Not Hold Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 387. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is Leonard Steinhorn. Leonard Steinhorn's expertise includes American politics, culture, and media, the presidency, and presidential elections, political strategy, and communication, recent American history, the 1960s, race relations in America, and he is the author of The Greater Generation in Defense of the Baby Boom Legacy. Now, some out there in our audience of Not Old Better Show patrons might wince at some of the more garish staples of the 1960s, like bell-bottoms, tie-dyed t-shirts, and unbridled hairstyles, especially when they turn up in our personal photo albums. (laughs) But even though the decade is now half a century in the past, it's one that continues to reverberate in our society, politics, culture, and institutions to this day. And our guest today, Leonard Steinhorn, explores the decade's meaning and its legacy, which may well be the widening, dividing line in our politics today. You'll hear from Leonard Steinhorn here today, and Lenny Steinhorn will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Program Tuesday, October 15th, 2019. Now, please join me in welcoming via internet phone author Leonard Steinhorn. Leonard Steinhardt, welcome to the program. My pleasure to be here. It's great to talk to you. Knowing a little bit about what you're going to be talking about at the Smithsonian Associates, I think this is going to be fascinating to our audience, but why don't you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Well, uh, we can begin with a quote from William Faulkner, which is, the past is never dead, it's not even past. And the bottom line here is that what we are living with today is a result of what we've gone through over the past five or six decades. The 1960s fundamentally changed the values, the ideas, the institutions, the attitudes of this country, and we are living with the reverberations of that. Arguably, Barack Obama was a result of that, but also arguably so was Donald Trump. So to be able to understand how the 1960s shaped American politics and culture today, We have to go back to be able to understand where we are today. We have to look at yesterday to know today. And that's really the core idea behind this talk. As a boomer myself, and certainly most of our audience fit into that category, I don't think we even realize maybe the influence we've had. And it's fashionable to mock boomers. But there is a legacy that, that you talk about. So I wondered if you'd give us a little bit of, about what you, you feel that legacy is of boomers. Well, it is indeed, as you say, fashionable to mock boomers. I mean, I've got a whole list of headlines from newspapers and other sites, you know, like the New York Times. Boomers hit new self-absorption milestone, age 65. Uh, Washington Post, a generation learns that the world doesn't revolve around it anymore. And there's been this narrative that's developed for a number of reasons. I can talk about that as well. But a narrative's developed that boomers are a singularly selfish generation that haven't really done much for this country, that in fact have harmed this country, uh, eroded its common fabric, uh, and haven't added much. And thankfully, That baton is going to be passed soon, but it can't be soon enough. And that's really the narrative that you hear. I argue that, you know, hating boomers is the last acceptable prejudice. Um, But if you step back and look as a historian at how this country has changed in the last five or six decades, you can't but 
conclude that boomers have changed almost everything in the United States, and I argue for the most part, not on everything, have changed it for the better. We can look at families, and yes, you can say families has started to split apart in the 1960s, and we have more single-parent families and all the rest. That's true, but that didn't start with boomers. That actually started before boomers. But in fact, what you do see in many families in which people, whether it's two men, two women, man and a woman, they are sharing far more of the responsibilities of child rearing. Women are going out to work in numbers we never imagined in the 1950s. Um, it's almost like science, science fiction when you look back to the 50s and see what women, how women were framed and what they're doing today. It's a completely different America. So families have changed. Responsibilities for children have changed. Um, responsibilities for sharing the work in a family have changed. They're not fully equal but they have changed profoundly from a time when very few fathers, for example, even showed up in delivery rooms when their children were being born. We have shifted the narrative and shifted the culture in fundamental ways. So families, things have changed. Women, things have, uh, things have changed. You go look at women's sports, for example. Um, uh, in 1972, there were only 300,000 high school girl athletes. There are now 3.4 million today. Young girls feel empowered to express themselves, to do the things they're passionate about, to have opportunities ahead of them. And look, I teach this generation all the time. Um, you know, they want to change the world. They want to get involved. Young women are feeling a certain amount of agency in terms of what they want to do and how they want to do it that people in years ago never were able to feel because of the prejudices, biases, and discrimination that was thoroughly woven throughout the fabric of our country. So gender has changed. Families have changed. Work has changed. We are far more, far less hierarchical at work, far more engaging of people's opinions and ideas, far more flexible at work. Yes, it's not perfect. People may not feel that they have as many rights because unions have declined. But at the same time, lots of young people are feeling like they can have their voice heard, that they can say what they want because boomers upended the hierarchy, the organization man mentality that dominated so much of the workplace for many years. That's changed. So higher education has changed too. When you go back decades ago, there were no black history, black studies programs, no women's studies programs. Um, their Hispanic studies was all about Spain and not Latin America or any other part of the world. Um, there were a few courses that dealt with the African-American experience, if any at all. I've done the, the research on dissertations. There were virtually no dissertations in academia up through the 1960s that dealt with issues related to black people or what were called then Negroes or, or ne the Negro in American culture. You look at dissertations databases, no such dissertations take place, maybe 0.3%, virtually nothing. Yet, we had lots of dissertations on medieval literature, lots of dissertations on Germanic literature, um, and very few on the black experience in America. Women too, very few on women. You look at titles of dissertations in those days, very few on women. That has changed fundamentally. So you look at the curriculum in higher education. It's more diverse. It's broader. People are still studying Shakespeare, but they're also reading Toni Morrison 
and they're also reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez because they've understood that you have to widen the curriculum to be able to teach people about this diverse globe that we are living in. That is a result of all the battles that boomers fought in the 1960s and 1970s to broaden the curriculum and to bring more voices into higher education. So that's changed. And of course, race relations have changed. Some say race relations are worse today because we have so much tension right now. But Martin Luther King used to say that tension is actually a sign of progress. If people aren't talking about things, then things aren't going to change. Black Lives Matter is directly related to what was going on in the 1960s. It's a continuum. And the more people push, the more they take the lessons from the 1960s, the more they will change this country. So, yes, we have seen enormous changes over these five or six decades in fundamental ways. Um, and I think what happens is that people take all of that for granted because they live it. They don't think that it's changed because they haven't sort of stepped out of themselves and thought about what it was like five or six decades ago and the opportunities for African-Americans, the opportunities for women, the opportunities for gay and lesbian Americans who were basically told to stay in the closet and to deny who they were. They can now get married. Think about that. So we have changed in profound ways for the better. And I argue that baby boomers have had a huge impact on American history and American culture. But here's the thing. When you're changing institutions, when you're changing families, when you're changing norms, when you're changing attitudes, when you're changing gender relations and race relations, uh, when you're changing relationships within the workplace, when you're changing curriculum in higher education, none of that's dramatic. None of that will ever show up up in a movie about uh, a world war um, because this is slow, it's institutional, but it's fundamentally changed the norms that ev that everyone in this new generation is now abiding by, and that is essential to changing a nation. It might be fair to say, too, that some of this change, some of these improvements, maybe some of the pushing is leading to today's polarization. Well, to some extent, what we're having with today's polarization is part of America that is uncomfortable with the changes from the 1960s onward, and they're pushing back. Um, they tend to be older, more rural, more socially conservative, more religious, um, and very, very different from a lot of those sort of cutting-edge changes that took place from the 1960s onwards. Um, so they're resisting uh, the, all of the new things. They're, they're worried that the world has passed them by and they want to grab onto the world as it used to be. There was a survey done, I think, in 2017 um, in which they asked uh, uh, Trump voters and Republicans and evangelicals, has America changed for the better or for the worse uh, since the 1960s? And a vast number of, of Trump supporters, conservatives, evangelicals, Republicans say it's changed for the worse. You ask the same question of Democrats and liberals and people living in urban areas, and they say it's changed for the better. So there you have the 1960s as the dividing line in our culture, and a lot of people basically saying, hey, I would like to recapture that era of the 1950s when I held status, when I had a great job, when I dominated the culture, when I was respected, when no one criticized me for having the attitudes that I have. Um, they want to recapture that. But here's the thing. This new generation, 
they are far more 60s than 50s. And so even though we are fighting these continuing battles coming out of the 1960s, this new generation has accepted the 1960s norms. That's become their baseline. And I argue, and I often talk about this, that they're the ones who are going to fundamentally change this country because they're not going to be living with the battles over the 60s that America is still going through today. We are speaking with Leonard Steinhorn. Leonard Steinhorn will be at the Smithsonian Associates Program October 15th, 2019, speaking on Flashback, the 60s, how the decade shaped American politics today. I'd like to touch on something that you, you referred to earlier, and that is the maybe the dichotomy, maybe the distinction between Obama voters and Trump voters. There couldn't be perhaps more of a gap. And I've read in my, in my research of you that one, literally maybe the Obama presidency even has led to the presidency of Donald Trump. And I wonder if you'd Describe that a little bit and tell us how we got here. Well, in a funny way, these voters are far more similar than people realize. And a lot of that goes back to the 60s because the sort of Obama voters, the people who support a more inclusive or socially liberal America, um, they grew up fighting what was then the old establishment. They were fighting the authorities that were dominating American society at the time. They were fighting against sort of an encrusted big business culture. They were fighting against uh, religiosity and a moralism that they felt stifling um, and ultimately uh, uh, keeping people from expressing themselves. Um, they fought against the types of law enforcement that condoned uh, beating up protesters and going down south and using the police to be able to bust up the civil rights rights movement. They fought against what was then the establishment, the military establishment, the political establishment, the religious establishment, the corporate establishment. That was an anti-establishment generation that said, we've had enough of the old, we want to usher in the new. And ultimately, in many ways, Barack Obama was an expression of that new generation, of that new establishment, of people who bought into the norms of the 1960s. So how does that relate to the Trump voters? Because in a funny way, the Trump voters can trace it back to the 60s as well and say they are anti-establishment too. But for them, the establishment that they're rebelling against is that new establishment that came out of the 1960s. What they see as liberal elites, the media establishment, intellectuals, the people who helped to create those norms, they are fighting against them and they are saying, I don't want you to tell me how to pray, how to live my life, what I can say in public. I don't like you enforcing those rules. And they see themselves as rebels, as people who are, you know, have don't tread on me flags, as anti-establishment folks going against the people that they perceive to have so much power. So the irony here is that the Obama voter, they were anti-establishment against the people who had power for so many years and felt vindicated with the election of Barack Obama. And all of a sudden, the Trump voters arise and say, nope, 
I'm the real anti-establishment type because you are telling me how to live my life and I don't really like it and I'm going to stick my thumb in your eye every opportunity I get because I don't like the power you have over me culturally, politically, even economically and socially. So in some funny way, they both share this sort of anti-establishment strain coming out of the 1960s uh, and that's how they're expressing it. So again, um, this is where you see potentially the dividing line, this narrative from the 1960s, the two sides of the culture war, the two sides of how people perceive themselves as anti-establishment. And there you have the distinction between the presidency of Barack Obama and the presidency of Donald Trump. Leonard Steinhorn, so interesting to talk to you. I really could talk to you for, for, for a long time. I know you're very busy and we so appreciate your time. I just have one final question for you, kind of a sweeping question about, about boomers. Uh, not not getting back to the kind of the mocking boomers uh, sentiment, but do you think as boomers we're maybe finished shaping America, or do we still have a lot to give? Well, what's the sort of final stage of our boomer journey? Um, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we all have a choice, um, uh, and that choice is to get reengaged in a way that we haven't had the opportunity quite as much at a political level um, over the last few decades because many were raising a family and working hard to support themselves. So the real question for boomers is how will they get reengaged on all of this? Will they continue to do sort of nonprofit work and volunteering work? One of the hidden facts about the baby boom generation that most people don't know is that it was an explosion of work in the nonprofit sector compared to any other generation before that. Um, And so, um, you know, will boomers continue to do that? Of course, when you're retired, um, you have every right to relax to enjoy life, uh, to hope that you have enough resources to be able to sustain and nourish yourself over the final few decades of of your time here. Um, But this has always been a generation that has sought meaning. Uh, The whole idea of the politics of meaning became very, very important in sort of baby boomer culture. Um, So will boomers re-engage meaning? Will they get back involved in nonprofits? Will they begin to work in their communities? Will they go out on the political trail and volunteer and go door to door for the candidates they believe in? Um, Will they sort of go back to those days in the 1960s and 1970s when they were rolling up their sleeves, when they were getting involved, when they were getting passionate about all of these issues? Um, So that's a big question. We'll have to see how that plays out. But I think there's another important point here, uh, which we can't undervalue, which is that um, boomers did raise the most socially inclusive generation in our nation's history, which are millennials and Mm. all the people around them. (laughs) Um, You look at every single survey of this young generation, they are inclusive. To them, issues related to sexual orientation, they don't matter quite as much as they did to previous generations. To race, they don't matter quite as much as they did to previous generations. To opportunities for every segment of our society, they don't matter quite as much um, as they did to every generation. I have in my classroom conservative, politically conservative students who just don't think twice about working in a group project with a transgendered student. It's not an issue for them. Um, So boomers did their job by embedding those norms in their family, by sort of doing that phrase that the Southern Poverty uh, Leadership Council 
I'm sorry. By 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 doing that phrase at the uh, by, by doing that phrase of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is teaching tolerance. Boomers taught tolerance to future generations, and that became the norm that has been embedded in our culture. So insofar as they take on their role as grandparents and continue to teach that inclusiveness and tolerance within their larger families, their extended families, then maybe they don't have to go out and do their political activism. And maybe they don't have to go out into those nonprofits and volunteer because if they continue to sort of embed those values in future generations, then they will have done and accomplished what they started in the 60s, which is to change the fundamental norms of our society, to make it more inclusive, to make it less hostile, to make it less angry toward people who were outside the mainstream and to create this inclusive America, which I think this next generation is moving far more in the direction of. And hopefully those boomer lessons, that boomer talk will actually be part of this millennial walk as they move ahead and create that moral arc of history that Martin Luther King talked about that it bends more toward justice. Leonard Steinhorn, uh, flashback, the 60s, how the decade shaped American politics today, coming up Tuesday, October 15th, 2019. From Smithsonian Associates, been our guest today. Thank you so much. This is just such an interesting subject, and we appreciate uh, all of your research and especially your time. So thanks for being so generous, Leonard Steinhorn. Paul, it's my pleasure. Thank you. My special thanks to Leonard Steinhorn joining me today. And thanks always to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. The Not Old Better Show. Talk about better. Thanks, everybody.